0: You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Andre, it's time for a Legacy Podcast.
1: It definitely is. Um, You and I just had a very busy day where we had a chance to talk to some really cool cats.
0: Cats is right. We uh, um, we had what I think is probably one of the most interesting conversations with a gentleman who started uh, Stony Ridge Winery, Jim Warren.
1: And he pulled no punches. And it's, it's once again, it's interesting when we talk to all these founders about what what they see is the future of Ontario wine, and we've gotten a different answer. And the answer that we got from Jim is straight out of left field, but I'm going to save that because it's very late in the podcast when we get
0: to that. Yeah, we should l- just let it go. So uh, speaking of letting it go, roll the tape.
2: I'm not too sure why you're talking to me. <laughs> I guess I'm a pioneer in a way of the new wave wineries starting back in the 1980s Um, I was a high school teacher in Hamilton, a language teacher had a hobby that became an obsession Uh, joined amateur winemakers in the 70s eventually I ended up writing their newsletter and I did seminars to try and I would study something and then I would put it back to the membership in a seminar and that, that way I learned about wine things that I never knew I brought people in from the industry, Don Zeraldo, Joe Porley, they came and talked to these winemakers around 1980. Um, then I met some people that had a vineyard, Bryce Wiley and his wife Jennifer, and they said, uh, Why don't you? Uh, why don't you come and, and uh, help us, and we'll we'll turn our grapes into juice. And you've got all the connections in in home winemaking. You can sell the juice to home winemakers. Ah, so we, about nineteen eighty four, we went out and we bought a little press and some rustic equipment, and uh, we started processing grapes. And then it just happened at the time there there was a. Uh, a seminar going on in Toronto when some company had, from the States had come up with a tank. It was a 500-gallon tank. So we went over and saw it, and then we thought, Jesus, you know, we could buy this tank and we could get started in the wine business. We knew nothing about the wine business, but anyway, um, we went to the LCBO, and we said, listen, we've got a chance here to get a tank and get started, and, well, they hummed and hawed about us, and in the meantime, the guy t- tank back to the states and we had to eventually go down to the states and buy this tank and come back and we started our winery no business plan no money no idea of what the wine industry was or was going to be but I just I had this feeling from home winemaking that the home winemakers were making wine that was better than the wineries so there had to be some attention so in 1985 we actually got a license and we started Stony Ridge up on Ridge Road, above Winona, in the middle of nowhere. And that was the beginning of, a, of the next really exciting stage of my life. It took me out of teaching, uh, into the wine business full time. And eventually it led to becoming a consultant and helping others start wineries and uh, teaching at Niagara College. Now I've just finished a book on the birth of the wine industry,
0: and. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't figured out, we're talking to Jim Warren. That's who we're talking <laughs> talking to uh, today. And uh, I know, Andre, you've you this is your first meeting of uh, of Jim.
1: Yes, and you know what? I, I've been asking everyone in this uh, the legacy series of the podcast the same question, but I have to double down on this, especially as someone who was a teacher, steady job. Steady pension.
2: Why Give the hell, it all up. Why the hell would you give that up to get into the wine industry? Like I say, it became an obsession. My wife was a teacher, and she was going to have a pension, and I figured if everything just doesn't work out, at least we'll have that. So to be honest with you, I didn't give that a lot of thought. Um, I didn't really think about risk. These were still days when most people were saying you're crazy nobody wants Ontario wine but I knew that really wasn't true because things were already starting to change and some I could see some good things beginning to happen at long last we were starting to grow vinifera grapes and some decent hybrids so I thought there's a chance and I had really good luck as an amateur winemaker in competitions So I had a great reputation and I thought we're going to give this a shot. So the the first year, 1985, we made 500 gallons. We still talked about gallons at that time, which is hardly any wine at all and it turned out okay. And then the next year we went up to 2,000 gallons and the next year we went up to 4,000 and we just sort of did that for the first four years. We sold a lot of juice to... uh, Quebec. And then my partners got tired of all the work. Um, I had started to wind down my teaching. I hadn't left completely. And the fellow down, the farmer down below us, said he'd be interested in having the winery on his property. And so Murray Puttycombe and I became partners. He bought out my two other partners. And that started Stony Ridge 2. And that's when I left teaching because. we were just getting to be too big. I was up to... That first year, we made something like 20,000 gallons. So that was a full-time job, and I couldn't keep up the teaching, and I couldn't... You know, I'd have to be in Toronto at the LCBO, and I'd have to be teaching a class, and I couldn't handle all that, so... And then... um, I guess uh, reality set in and uh, you have a line of credit with the bank and, it, and all of a sudden everything becomes a business. And it, 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 the, the fun is still there and the enjoyment of working literally eight days a week, driving over to Toronto every weekend for some charitable function while working all day at the winery. But, I mean, you, yeah, at that t- point in time, you really had to love... <coughs> love the wine business and I think the people in it did and that <coughs> propelled the business and the industry to the next level where all of a sudden everybody and his brother wanted to start making wine and you know in the 1990s but I think um when I got into it I was fortunate it was it was a good time We worked extremely hard, everybody, including my wife, who still taught, and then worked two days on the weekend. So, didn't have time to think about problems, you just went out there and and did your thing. Well, let me me just kind of
1: take it back um, one step. So, you're talking about 1984 when you got the first tank, and that comes ten years after Inneskillen got their license. Yes. And you talk about man you you thought that there was something going on in Ontario do you remember whether it's a specific winery or wine that you tasted that was just like okay we we can do this like what what was it that made because your background as a as a teacher it, actually and, and before we get to that one um what what
2: drove your love of wine that That's very difficult to explain because as a child, I never had wine. We didn't have wine in our house. At Christmas time, my father would go out and buy a bottle of Mogan David. And that was for the people coming in at Christmas time. And that was wine. And I didn't encounter wine until one New Year's when I was still in high school. We went to Prudem's and we had some wine. Oh, that was a big deal. And I liked it. And then I just started to... Try more wines, and eventually that's what I did. I, I'd buy wines at the LCBO and start learning about them. I just got caught. And then in the early 70s and like 71, my wife bought me a kit, a home winemaking kit for Christmas. And I made these two god awful wines and thought, you know, I can't do this. This is crazy. Why bother? But the next year I still had some stuff around the house and I went out and I bought some juice, some Concord juice. And once again I made a terrible, terrible wine and I was going to give it up. I cleaned out the freezer one day and I made a wine from all this fruit that was in the freezer and it turned out phenomenal. So I went to a wine and hop shop store in Hamilton and... uh, The fella sampled it, and he said, why don't you come out and join our club? And that was it. I was hooked. And I joined his his club and became a customer and started to make carboys, and I ended up with about 20 carboys in my basement, and my life changed. Do you still make wine to this day? I haven't made any wine for a couple of years. Um, When I got out of the business a couple of years ago, we had aging parents to take care of, and I sort of devoted my life at that point to taking care of my wife's parents and my mother. All three of them passed away in their 90s, so that was our life for, for two or three years. But since then, uh, I got into writing the book, um, and now I just enjoy drinking wine. <laughs> All right, now the
1: moment, that moment, we got the moment now where you realized that that you could get into this and and that you could actually make wine that tastes good. What was the moment for you when you realized that we could make great wine in Ontario?
2: Um, I I knew the wineries were starting to make some some decent wines, but there was still a lot of the older style, you know, made from the Niagara's and the Concord grapes, the old Nebraska grapes. Uh, People were still talking about port and sherry from Ontario, but two or three winers were making some Chardonnay and little bits of Riesling and a couple of viniferous. So I went down to Niagara and I met some growers. I met Bill Lenko um, in the late 70s and some other people. And I found a grower that had a grape called Coudere Muscat. And this thing just turned me on. I was able to make a sweet wine, a sparkling wine, like Asti Spumante, And I think that grape and meeting those growers convinced me that there were other people out there that were that were starting to do some really exciting things. And I know Innes Killen had made a Coudier Muscat back in about 1975, which was also a nice wine. And... Um, I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I, I want to make wines that are going to really please people and, and excite them about wine. And that's what we tried to do. So when I got into the business, I know the first year I only made four, four wines, but eventually I was making 40 or 50 wines every year. I made a lot of different wines. Something for everybody, which people said was a huge mistake, it never was a mistake. What were those first four? I made a au Noir which sold for $4.95 a bottle. Which is still too high. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Vidal, Chardonnay and Coudre Muscat. And the Coudre Muscat won me an award in an international competition. And I thought, this is great, because I had won awards before in home winemaking, and now I can win, win awards in with the pros. And that set me on a, on a course. And I think what really cemented everything was about 1987, 88 maybe, Tony Aspler came out to the winery, which he called the Bait and Tackle Shop, because it was just a shed, really, on a farm. You can't start a winery that way today. Anyway... He, he tasted a Chardonnay that was in barrel and he said, geez, this is pretty good. Why don't you bottle it? And you think, I said, do you think it's ready? He says, oh, I think it's ready. So we bottled it. And that, that year was the very first Cuvée down in Niagara Falls. And Stony Ridge won the white wine category with that Chardonnay, Lanco Vineyard Chardonnay, 1987. And we came second in the Reds And the winery that came first in the Reds was Bright's. And a winemaker named Ron Giesbrecht, who Mm. was still at Bright's, had made this vinifera red wine and and it won. But people were saying, who is Stony Ridge? Nobody really knew who we were. Well, then they had a tasting of chardonnays from around the world in a follow-up thing. And they had Hugh Johnson at the tasting and some wine writers at the time. And it was all done blind. They they had um, um, what's the big French chardonnay starts with an M. Merceau
0: Ber-
2: merceau no not Merceau, it was at the higher up than Merceau. Monarche oh, okay. yeah Monarche
0: excuse and, me
2: and they had <laughs> they had some California Chardonnays and Stony Ridge won the blind tasting and people couldn't believe that an Ontario Chardonnay actually outdid these other Chardonnays in this in tasting. So, I mean, that started our reputation and then I was fortunate to be able to just keep building on it. Then we got down to Puttycombs, and I think what the exciting thing there was, we started to do things that nobody else had ever done. I had read a book, I'll never forget it, it was called Guerrilla Marketing. And I got so many ideas out of this guy's book that we implemented. So we had a wine club, we call it the Barrel Club. And we got people to invest their money and so I could go out and buy barrels. I didn't have to spend my own money. And then they got a certain amount of wine. And we had a dinner every year. Great thing. Other people picked up on that not, not long after. Um, I made some wine for the Wata Mohawks. They had cranberries. They came to me and they said, would you make us some wine? We're going to sell it on the, on the reserve. I said, sure. I made them the wine. I charged them for making the wine. The next thing I knew, I had the LCBO on my door. What are you doing? We're, you know, you've, you've broken the law. I said, all I did was make some wine for these guys. They, they told me they don't pay tax. So we solved that problem. Uh, I introduced iced apple which since then has become a huge category in Quebec. Mm -hmm. We were the first winery, I think, on earth to make iced apple wine. Um, That's a great product, too. Oh, it is. It was a huge seller. We were the first to put vineyard names, like Lenko Vineyards, Mm -hmm. Eastman Vineyards on labels. Um, we, We just did a number of things, and everything just clicked. So, then we, we won lots of awards, when I became winemaker of the year in around 1997,
0: and then I decided to sell the business. And now, so, before we get into that, <laughs> so you're, you are you were known for making Chardonnay, like that was one of your biggest things that everybody knew okay. for was for Chardonnay. Is it your favorite grape to work with, or did you have a, another grape that you'd love to work with?
2: Um, I'd say, if I had to pick a favorite, it would would be Chardonnay. Because I I think we talk about terroir and and whether the wine reflects the vineyard that it comes from and stuff like that, but Chardonnay is a a little different animal. It it lets the winemaker work with it in the sense that you can do so many things with it. You, You can ferment it in a barrel, you can ferment it in stainless steel. Or if you want, you can ferment it in cement eggs today, which we didn't have back then. You can, um, you can do so many things with it right from the beginning to have an impact on the wine, which kind of takes away from the terroir. But that didn't stop me from putting the name of the vineyard on the label because I, I felt I knew nothing about growing grapes. I've never been able to say I know anything about growing grapes. I just could taste grapes and say, yeah, I like those. I think they can make good wine. And then when I get the grapes, go to it. So I felt Lenko and Eastman and Butler's Grant, they were great locations, people that knew how to grow grapes. And I was lucky to get their grapes and do something with it.
1: I think it's interesting that you just said that, That especially with Chardonnay, you can work against the, the terroir. But I think what I've always found is You can have the people who can either work with the terroir or fight against it. And especially when we're talking about Chardonnays that are over-oaked or under-oaked or have been manipulated, it becomes really apparent where a great winemaker can, like you said, taste the fruit and find a way to work with it to make it taste better. And I don't don't think that necessarily is fighting against the, the terroir. I mean, I could be completely wrong. You've been doing it, tasting wine a lot longer I, than I am. I think have.
2: sometimes the whole concept of terroir is is a little extreme. Um, there are a lot of myths in winemaking, and someone one day should write a book about the myths involved in winemaking. But um, I also make Chardonnay in an unoak style, and there's an interesting story behind that too. I think we were the first to make un Chardonnay, and we called it. Charlotte's Chardonnay, after my wife, and it was a huge seller. It, it sold extremely well in the LCBO. We were at a tasting in Burlington one time, and right beside me was Gallo, and Gallo was pouring an un Chardonnay, and my wife went over and tried it, and she came back and she said, I really like this Chardonnay. It doesn't have any oak on it. She says, you've got to make some. I said, Look, I'm not, I don't really think a lot of Gallo wines at, at that point. Gallo didn't have a great reputation, unlike today. Um, so anyway, I caved and I that year I made this Chardonnay. But what made it a little special was that it was made with Chardonnay mousquet grapes and it was different. You know, people would say this isn't Chardonnay. Well, of course, it's not oaked and it's got some flavor and it's got some aromatics and anyway it took off and it it was a big thing for us
0: so so you so you own the business you own stony ridge so first of all before i get into that stony ridge was what number on the depth chart as far as ontario winery so we have in who is technically number you know the first one that started in the modern age our license was number 17 Oh, really? Okay. okay. Yeah. All right.
2: Because by that time, you had Reif, uh, you had Vineland Estates. Be- before the Schmitz, the- there was Vineland Estates, um, Montrevin you had the Big Fives. They were still making wine at that point. They hadn't got a. The- Who are
1: the business? Big Five for those of us too young to remember An- the Andres, big
2: Five Andre's, uh, Bright's, Shadow Gay, Jordan's, Barnes. And then if you went outside Niagara, there was still London winery. Eventually all of those became one unit, Bencor, Bencor. but the industry was, was starting to change dramatically. There, there weren't enough of the newer grapes for those large wineries to, 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 to use. So they had to bring in imported material, that was all part of their business. And they were still using some of the older varieties. But they could see the writing on the wall. The older varieties were no longer acceptable. And eventually, 1988 or 89, they were outlawed for table wine. So they had huge problems. They, they couldn't make enough wine for their business. In the meantime, you've got all these new little wineries yapping at their heels who are making all the viniferas and the hybrids and doing a nice job and starting to take market share. So the industry was in quite a quite a bit of turmoil during the the late nineteen eighties. And of course VQA was was just coming on and other other programs that the government government had more support programs for the grape and wine industry than you can count. Going way back to the 1930s. Government's always been involved in helping the growers and helping the wineries to stay in business interesting thing
0: so you start in 85 12 years later 1997 you sell the business who do you sell it to what do you do what are you doing after that
2: well um i didn't really want to sell the business but i was being put in a box by my partner we did have some partnership issues i I don't want to go into those but we were a little gold mine and it didn't really make sense to to sell except I, I said to myself we've got a lot of new wineries coming on board. The LCBO was changing their attitude to um, listings. You, you had to in a sense earn a listing or buy a listing and you had to maintain a listing otherwise you would be delisted. And wineries were starting to get, to be delisted. And I'm thinking, whoa, you know, I've got these big tanks of wine here now. Whatever happens if they get delisted? What am I gonna do with all this wine? So I was starting to be a little bit concerned about the industry at the time. Not the quality of our wine, but, and not a lot of other things that we had that were successful. But I think it was the, the, the difficulty with the partners. And I said, you know, life, life is too short. To to keep doing this, I was uh, I was going to work on someone else's property over which I had no control. The wines I had control, so we decided to sell, and I I had a great offer from um, Don. What's his name at Vincor? Uh, Tricks, sure. Don Tricks. Um, in fact, I was probably stupid to turn it down, but they, they wanted me to go to Inniskillen. And Stony Ridge would become a brand. Stony Ridge Winery would disappear. All my employees would be gone. Uh, I couldn't keep my wife in the business. They, their policy at that time was no husband and wife teams. But, I mean, the, the compensation everything else was phenomenal. These people from Ottawa came and they conned me in a sense. They had a beautiful vision of a winery down in Jordan, on the escarpment, waterfall behind, bed and breakfast, art gallery, wonderful complex. And I could keep my winemaking team, Stony Ridge stays as a winery and all that jazz. So eventually I sold to them and I sold to them. And that was it. Um, We moved Stony Ridge. The Niagara Scarlet Commission did not agree with the vision of these people from Ottawa. They caused them a lot of trouble. They didn't want that up there. And so we ended up buying a property across the street where Stony Ridge is today. And I could have bought that property at the time myself. I said to my wife, Charlotte, If we're going to be working across the street, we could live right here. Ten acres, nice little farm. House was okay, barn. And the fellow that lived there had just died and and the the estate was literally dumping the property. I should have bought it because I had the money from selling Stony Ridge. Mm. But um, my wife was stuck here in Hamilton. She didn't want to leave, so we didn't buy it. Anyway, Stony Ridge bought it because they had to go, they had to have a property to move to, and that's where they moved Stony Ridge. So um, I stayed there for a while longer. I can't remember now, a year or so, a year and a half. And then um, I I could see that um, other people were were starting wineries and they needed help. A lot of people didn't didn't really. Know too much. One, one of them was Dave at Featherstone. I gave Dave some help. Uh, but there were some other wineries. Uh, there was one called Trillium, Trillium Hills, or something like that. They started, didn't listen to me, went out of business a year later. But some other I, I helped at Legends, Daniel Lenko. But then came the opportunity for Niagara College. They wanted to start a wine program, Winery and Viticulture. And they thought that I would be the ideal person, with my teaching background and winery background. So that was it,
0: and that was great. <laughs> so you helped them establish that that course. I, I helped
2: the, the st- I did all the wine program for what they did. I created the wine making program, not the vineyard stuff, and and not not the chemistry. That was some. The chemistry teacher did all of that, but. Uh, all the, the wine programs
0: and then you, and you then you were with niagara college for how long until you retired I, or you i was
2: i was there altogether for about 10 years i i stayed for five or six years as the winemaker but it started to get me down having to drive that far every day See, I, yeah I, I lived here yeah
0: so it was we're a, in hamilton uh,
2: sense. right so it was a fair drive um it was difficult with Niagara College dealing with a bureaucracy because I would say to them, look, these students need to have the latest equipment. If we're going to send them out to wineries they have to know how to operate a filter or a press or, or whatever. And the, what we're using here in, in what was a barn, literally a shed, a terro- terrible place to be making wine. Anyway, I, I, they didn't have a lot of money to into the program and get all the things that I was constantly after them to get so um, I said you know when are you gonna they kept promising me a winery so finally I just got tired and and I said that's it and the year after
0: I gave up the winemaking
2: they built the winery
0: (laughs) 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 sounds like when I was in radio college and uh, we had to learn to splice tape, and like a year later, all digital was all yep. in. So That's how things go.
2: And I stayed on, and I taught the, uh, the history of Ontario winemaking, which was right up my alley. I mean, that's always been my thing. Um, and then I got to the point of the, the book, and I was a little bit unhappy that there are so many stories about the early days of Ontario wine that are not true. And what's happened is somebody started the story for whatever reason, and everybody else since then has just picked it up as if it's the gospel, in, including our friend Tony Askler who has repeated the erroneous stories a couple of times himself. So I thought, this this has got to be done right. Um, people, people should know about the early days of the industry. The, the unfortunate thing is, today's industry doesn't give a damn about the original industry it's redundant there's who wants to know about concord and niagara or the first winery in grimsby or well i think there's some people that do
1: people listening to this podcast are people i mean the people who listen who tune in for the legacy series are
2: looking for these stories well uh, my book is called when concord was king the bittersweet legacy of Ontario's native grape and wine
0: industry. We'll, we'll look forward to that. So what, I, what I'd like you to do, obviously you're going you're to break a few myths in the book. How about you give us a taste of a couple of those myths that, that, are, that are being broken?
2: Well, the, the original story goes back to the very early 1800s and involves a man named John Schiller. He was a German fellow, Johann Schiller. We know an awful lot about John Schiller, his service in the Revolutionary War, land grants that he got from the government, uh, from the British government, his movement from Quebec to Niagara-on-the-Lake to eventually just outside Toronto, the west side of Toronto, in what became Cooksville. We know a lot about him and his family. There is not a single reference Anywhere to his growing grapes or making wine or having anything to do and with, with that. And at that point in our history, we had no grapes, just wild grapes. So there was no Concord grape at that point in time, in 1810. There, there was no Concord. There was no Niagara grape. There was no Catawba grape. Yes, there was. There was, there was possibly a Catawba. It it was right about around that time, but where where would he have found these grapes? I mean, we're talking about pioneers living in the woods, and we tend to look back two hundred years and sometimes think that things were just like they are today. No, I mean this was a pretty rustic life. So everyone said John Schiller made some wine, sold it to his neighbors. He's the father of the Ontario wine industry. There's not a shred of evidence about. 115 years after he died, there was a report in a Toronto newspaper. In fact, there were two reports about John Schiller and how he started the wine business. and uh, he, he sold grapes to France during the Phylloxera crisis. Well, just a second. The Phylloxera crisis happened 50 years after his death. So, the, the story was totally suspect. There's, there's no evidence for any of this stuff. Well, it turns out there's a, a writer of local history in Cooksville, and she wrote a book, and she dollied up some of the stories, and that's how that story got started. Um, it's kind of ironic because there, there was a nursery that started not far from John Schiller a few years after his time, and and they actually, I think, introduced... Some of the the hybrids, American hybrids that were being discovered in the states, the first grape was called Alexander, and then a grape, Catawba, and um, one or two others were were found by chance growing in the wild, and were cultivated, and they became the grapes of the industry at the time. But there's no evidence that. That Schiller was able to get any of them I mean two of them weren't even around at the time so it's, it's very very difficult to say there are no records but there's, there's just nothing to support any of the stories and in some of the stories that have become attached to Schiller about his creating a grape called the Clinton um, are, are erroneous. The Clinton grape was discovered around 1830 Fifteen years after Schiller was dead so he had nothing to do with creating a Clinton grape. Um, so anyway I've, I've tried to be nice to John but still you know set the record straight about how grapes actually came to Ontario from the States, who the first people were to pick up on them. You know, by Confederation grapes were, were still a novelty in Ontario. Beer Alcohol, whiskey, huge industries. Lots of breweries, lots of distilleries, zero wine. People didn't drink wine, only very wealthy people brought it in from Europe. But some people, why, who knows, started to make wine, plant plant some of these grapes. In the 1850s and 60s there was an explosion of, of uh, planting grapes that had just been discovered in the states and brought up here and that more or less stimulated the birth of of an an industry which was very very tiny at the time
1: so we've got a, a, a taste of your book here let's bring it back to 2017 right what do you feel how do you feel about the state of the industry as it stands right now
2: oh i guess i i'm in two minds about it um I think the industry is creating some very nice wines, um, particularly white wines, which I think is our niche. Sparkling wines coming on strong. Uh, Some pretty nice rosés, which is grown in. It's no longer a trend. I think it's a it's a style. Every once in a while I have a red which I enjoy, but I I think maybe we need more climate warming before we we really can get into some decent reds. Every once in a while there's a nice Pinot Noir or Gamay that that comes along. Um, What concerns me is the price of the wine. I I think some of our wines are getting to be relatively expensive. Now, you may say, well, they're not expensive compared to some other wines in other parts of the world, and, and that's true, but... Um, I, I get a little nervous when I go into the LCBO and I see Chardonnays that are thirty and forty dollars, and 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 then I I try them and I say, mm, "This is a pretty nice twenty five dollar bottle of wine." <laughs> um, I know the industry's changing, and I know there have been many changes, some of which I've. Lost. I haven't really followed everything, but um, it it's been a difficult industry all along because it's been two industries. It it's been the blending industry and the VQA industry. I I've always joked that it should be the Vinifera Quality Alliance because VQA really doesn't think too much of hybrid grapes, and and I think that's a mistake. Um, I had a tasting oh maybe six months ago of some of our my older wines and the two wines that absolutely blew everybody away were from the late 1980s and they were Seville Blanc I used to make Seville Blanc in a barrel, I'd break in my barrels with Seville Blanc then take it out and put in Chardonnay well these wines had been made in an, originally in a barrel and, and so on, but they were alive, they were Wonderful, Beautiful balance. People couldn't believe it. I used to make a wine called Savelle Blanc Fumé. And it was the biggest selling Savelle in the LCBO. It was even ahead of Bright's at the time. And then they started VQA, and VQA caused me to change the name. They said I had to change the name because it was confusing consumers with Fumé Blanc. So I didn't want to fight the VQA. I probably would have lost. So we changed the name back to Save-El Blanc, and, and I thought that was too bad. It probably hurt the sales. <laughs> but I think that's one grape that's kind of disappeared. I mean, we still have Vidal. You know, there's a, there's a, a real irony about our entire wine industry, which a lot of people don't appreciate. Some people just take our our industry for granted today. You know, we're growing vinifera grapes, just like the rest of the world. But for three or four hundred years, we weren't able to grow vinifera grapes in North America. And nobody knew why not. Whenever they brought viniferas over from Europe and planted them here, they died. Because during those 16, 17, 18, early 1900s, People didn't understand diseases, mildews, um, phylloxera, they had no idea. So they plant these grapes, couldn't grow. So we were stuck with the American hybrids. And I think our industry did a, a pretty good job, except during Prohibition, when, when the industry made a lot of poor wine to, in order to make a lot of money. Um, I think the industry overall, overall did a, a pretty good job with the grapes they had. Um, if if we had not had phylloxera in Europe, I say we wouldn't have a wine industry in Ontario today. Phylloxera was caused by taking some North American hybrids over to France, essentially, to start things off, and those hybrids, American hybrids, had phylloxera and mildews that people didn't know about. When they got to Europe, (coughs) whammo, they just (coughs) took over. And the Europeans didn't know what hit them. It took them a few years to figure out what was going on and eventually they did. Um, That led to a tremendous change in Knowledge of grape growing. It led to the creation of uh, various universities or university faculties in Europe. It led to sprays to deal with the mildews. It led to the grafting of vinifera onto resistant North American roots. It led to the creation of French hybrids. They would never have been created if there was never a need to deal with phylloxera. So out of phylloxera came all of these things which eventually allowed us in Ontario to grow vinifera grapes. We wouldn't have them today without it. We'd still be trying to scratch our head wondering why Chardonnay doesn't grow in Ontario. But now we know how to grow it. We know how to deal with it. Um, And we've been fortunate that we've grown a a, a wonderful industry out of it
1: now um i even understanding and and keeping in mind the history and the importance of of hybrids to the industry do you feel that a well-made bottle of saval blanc would be as good as a well-made
2: bottle of chardonnay it depends what you mean is by good you know i always i always get concerned with Wine writers who say this is the best Chardonnay in Ontario, and I say to them, "Well, have you tried all the Chardonnays? You know, like it may, it may be the best today for your palate, and so on." So when you talk about good, it's all—it's very relative. I think with something like Savelle or Vidal, you can make a very good ten or fifteen-dollar bottle of wine, and maybe with Chardonnay, if you know what you're doing, you can make a very good. $25 bottle of wine. And I think if you price the wine in relation to the overall quality of the wine, um, I, th- I think you'll, you're doing a good job. Um, it's too bad I can't give you some of the Savelle that we tasted that, that night uh, to, to show you. The proof was in the pudding. Saval makes a very nice everyday glass of wine, just like Vidal. And maybe Chardonnay you want to save it for the weekend, or maybe you don't, depending on your love of wine, but I think that's the way I would, would look at that. I, I know there's an interesting trend developing today, at least some people are pushing it, called orange wine. Well, the French have had Van jaune, yellow wine, for a while, and. Van Gris has been around for a long time so I, I don't know how new <laughs> orange wine really is but um, to, to let white grapes ferment on the skins for at least 10 days or 25 or 50 days, just, to me just seems ridiculous yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is it going to make a good wine? well again, what do you mean by good? is it going to make a wine that's unusual, uh, bizarre, uh, hugely tannic for those that want to chew on it? Uh, le- uh, sure, but why bother? Even for someone like myself who would make anything in the wine. <laughs> I remember one year I tried fermenting Gewürztraminer on the skins. I was going to make big Gewürztraminer and it just didn't. It just didn't work out. So, okay, have fun, make orange wine, and if you can get consumers to buy it, good for you.
0: <laughs> so, so looking at the future, we've asked this uh, of a number of, of, on our Legacy podcast. Um, what do you think are the main uh, varietals that we should be focusing on in Ontario because as you know we make pretty much everything we but we do a pretty
1: good job at, at at everything too depending on which winery you walk into Well through the doors it, it's
2: amazing the the number of grapes that are being made into wine today I think we started back in the 80s with about 20 different varietals and it, we've added on to the list I, you know it, we've had sauvignon blanc and pinot gris for only a few years I mean we're we're neophytes in growing some of these grapes. We've had Chardonnay for much longer, and Riesling. Um, I, don't, I don't see the value in trying to grow everything, I, although I do see the value in experimenting to find, find something that we may not know. But there are literally thousands of vinifera grapes. There, there are many indigenous grapes in Spain and France and, and Italy that we know nothing about. Would they grow here and do something? They might. We know that Chardonnay will grow and succeed and makes great wine. We know Riesling is phenomenal. I've tasted some pretty good Sauvignon Blancs. i um, been very impressed by some of those. Um, Pinot Gris, nothing wrong with our Pinot Gris. They're they're world class. Uh, Kunzleman makes a Pinot Blanc that I could drink every day for twelve or thirteen dollars. That's an incredible. Well,
0: an uh, underrated grape, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> definitely,
2: no. definitely. But if you want to start growing other whites, um, Chenin Blanc, I think other countries have discovered that they have limitations too. So. Um, I wish we had Poudre musket, but it was a very hard grape to grow. I just think that would really, it would provide a, a certain kind of taste in our wine industry that we don't have right now.
1: Um, You're giving us a very long politician-like diplomatic answer. But I mean, Jim, if you had to, if if I gave you 10 acres right
0: next to the... Well, I the I'd plant Ridge,
2: Chardonnay and Pinot Noir.
0: There we go. That's it. it. You would just do Chardonnay Pinot Noir and that's what you would stick with. Yeah. And what would you, uh, so that would be interesting, what would you make from these, you can make tons of stuff, but would you do the gamuts with that or just make straight Pinot Chardonnay or what would you do with it?
2: Well, I think if you're going to make Pinot Noir, you you really want to set yourself apart. I think we, we, I think people in the wine world, understand that Burgundy makes phenomenal Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and it's always been my ideal to to try to do the same thing um, that, that's that's where I would limit myself, simply because of my age, I would put some restrictions on what I would do to, <laughs> but if I was a lot younger I might have a different answer I think if, uh, you remember Larry Patterson, Larry, Larry was always Trying to talk me into making just one or two wines, Jim, and make them really good, and you know, and they'll sell. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's that's an idea. But I, I'm not a grape grower, so I don't. I, I'd have to have someone grow them for me, and you'd have to have the right spot. I'm consulting right now for uh, a group that wants to put a winery up in Hockley Valley. You, you've heard of Adamo yep. at, at Hockley Valley Resort. This property is about three or four miles away, and it's a very interesting site, and I'm sure they could do wonders there with, with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but I'd be really concerned about the winter, and I think that's something we all have to be concerned about. We've seen recently two severe winters which is simply a reminder that Mother Nature is always in control. And even though we're getting pretty good at growing grapes, there still is that huge risk associated with viniferous um, that every once in a while comes to bite us. And that's when I say maybe we should have some hybrids in the ground too. But, um, you see, I'm a little old-fashioned. I kind of thought the hybrids for what they were, were, were pretty decent, at least compared to what they replaced. And there's no doubt that vinifers are are better grapes for making wine. So, uh, there you go. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, I love making both of those. They've always been a, a, a real challenge for me. And there's, and there's lots you can do with them.
1: Jim it's been an absolute pleasure sitting down with you and talking about this and I think you'd probably be surprised that there are people who really do care about where the industry okay. well, came sure. from more than you realize and we'll look forward to your book and maybe not to talk about the, the history and your history but we'd love to have you on when the book comes out to talk about that.
0: That'd be great. Very good. Thank you very much. Get upon some highlights, break a few more myths. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> All right. I've, I've got my face set on stunned because I know you and I have both been very critical of um, of hybrids. But when I take a, a step back and I think about hybrid grapes, I look at Nova Scotia and the success they've had with their Tidal Bay brand. And I can't help but ask myself in the back of my head if maybe Ontario had started with a cornerstone like that and worked with some white hybrids what the industry might look like. I mean it's 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 hard to imagine how things could different be different. I
0: I I agree. It's uh and Jim is very pro uh hybrid and he's always and he always has been uh for as long as I've known him and it's just very interesting that uh the the grapes that he thinks and the wines that he think make some really great wine.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess we can maybe tease ahead. We've talked to a couple of other very important founders in the industry. Um, We have an upcoming podcast with uh, Herbert Konzelman. And people may or may not get the truth behind what happened at Lely as we spoke with Derek Barnett.
0: That's true. And then I'm going to even tease a little bit more here. We're off to um, uh, the Saguenay Wine Festival in Saguenay, Quebec. And we're going to have some stuff. Uh, that we record there with some very interesting people. I
1: cannot wait
0: to hear you I to am speak French. Very excited about this.
1: All right. Well, I guess we can wrap it up here. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Tell a friend, tell your wife, tell your children if they're legal drinking. Tell age. your
0: lover, and if she's not the same as your wife, have a good time. Michael, I think it's time to wrap it up. It is time to wrap it up. I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWinerView.com. I'm
1: Andre Prou from AndreWineReview.ca. And
0: as always,